I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This season, we'll invite guests of varying expertise to playfully investigate Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Each episode will explore a particular type of intelligence according to Gardner. This week's challenge was to compose an original piece of music, so we invited Grammy-nominated bassist Zachariah Witcher to help us explore the concept of musical intelligence. Zach is a performance artist, which means he spends most of his time on tour with various musicians, but when he's not touring, writing, or recording, he's helping other artists coordinate and design live shows through his company, Off-Brand Entertainment. For more about our guest and additional resources, check out our newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. Enjoy. Zachariah. This is fun. So far. So far. What are you doing today, my guy? Doing this. I was supposed to be leaving for tour tomorrow, but it just got canceled like a few minutes ago. Are you happy? I was prepared to go but rest is also good, so. I'm like really excited that you're on the podcast. And I feel like last week and this week, I'm bringing people on that like I know and love. It's comforting and nice to have people in my circle that are just fucking awesome humans. Like you're a Grammy nominated bassist. What the hell? Yeah, I kind of forgot about it until you read that on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so wait a second. <laughs> now, how does one forget? You know, when you think about the span of people doing music of any kind, that kind of nomination happens extraordinarily rarely. And if it happens to me, and you'll see later on why I also deserve a Grammy, I would never forget. So, how does that even happen? I've been playing for this girl, Katie Pruitt, for a while, recorded on her album, obviously, like way before it came out. And then the nomination happens a lot later. She got nominated for, like, Best Engineered Album. So in my head, when I saw it, I was thinking, oh, my friend Katie got nominated. And then my friends had to be like, no, you're on the album. Like, if she wins, you're going to get one, too. Wow. So I think it's just, like, a mental gap of, like, it didn't settle in that I was also attached to the nomination. Yeah. And so you're thinking... You're thinking of yourself kind of as supporting that artist, maybe in a way. Uh, but uh, yeah. the reality is, I, I think the bass really is the soul of the music. I mean, if you mm. listen to anything and the bass isn't good, it's not even music. So no matter what anyone else achieves, what you're doing is what allows that to happen. That's what I would say. Just, you know, slightly overselling what the bass does. But yeah, okay. All right. Oh, <laughs> it cannot be oversold. It is always undersold. I would, I would agree. When you see people shaking their butts, when you see people swaying their heads, when you see people feeling themselves alive with the music, it's the bass. I agree. There is actually a lot of evidence that low frequency sounds are the ones that really trigger your emotions and stuff. And high frequency kind of makes you anxious and excited, but it's like the lower sounds that make you feel good. So I don't disagree. Actually, I wanted to play cello. But cello was not really cool to, like, bring around in sixth grade, so I picked the flute. (laughs) Because that was uh, cool? (laughs) Don't even. Just just blow softly. Yeah. So, Zach, how did you come to choose the bass? I actually played drums first when I was, like, four or five. There was a guy at my church that started teaching me, and then apparently my mom told me one Sunday I was in church and the bass player on stage was boring to me. So I told my mom I wanted to learn how to play bass so I could teach him how to play better and how to dance while he was playing because he was very boring. Ah. Wait, I've seen you perform though. I didn't really see you dancing too much. Because I was sitting down. (laughs) I've seen a little bit of the dance moves, a little bit if you count skating, but I think it's kind of hard to dance while you're playing the bass, right? No, not at all. I love Primus. Uh, so you, you watch that guy in Primus? He's all over the place. He's having a damn good time. I feel like one of the best I've seen is like Bruno Mars live band. Almost mm. all of them are moving the whole time. And their bass player plays like great lines while hopping across the stage with Bruno. Can, can you also play upright? Uh, yeah. 
There's one, but you can't see it, but it's it's back there. Oh, sick. I love it. I said we got symphony tickets and we saw Gustav Holt's The Planets. Oh, it's one okay. of my favorites. And it just reminded me like of how much I really wanted to learn how to play a stringed instrument. But mm. I picked up the guitar and I don't know, after playing the piano, like nothing feels as good. I just, yeah. I love the piano. I started playing when I was like five because my godmother had a beautiful baby grand in her apartment in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I was just captivated by her playing. But I started playing in church when I was like 12 or 13. And I played flute and piano. It was like a weirdo show where I'd like switch from the flute to the piano. And like, they loved it. They like wanted to use that and play it up. I would do like three shows a day sometimes. <laughs> if I could choose another yeah. instrument right now, it would be piano. Yeah. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's, for sure. I was reading something about music and how the difference between people who just listen to music and the difference between people who play, it's like a full body workout for your brain to play just because of all the different areas of your brain that are activated. And huh. it's really weird to try and articulate what's happening, but I've been practicing every day for 10 minutes a day for the past, I don't know, three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you, Good. I think my brain is working differently. I think it really is. Like there's some kind of creativity and I can do things that I wasn't able to do before. Like even just sight reading, I can yeah. go back and sight read something that I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck? Wow, why? <laughs> and it's just doing these monotonous, repetitious tasks over and over and over that are like making other things fire, you know, besides the ability to get my hands exactly where I need them to go. Mm -hmm. I am able to connect the dots much quicker and I can even kind of fill in the blank as to where I think the next note should be, which I'm not typically good at. It's just really weird. Do you experience this? Yeah. So I did the whole music school thing. Like I went to college for music. So I think over that amount of time, you know, you come in with a very limited amount of knowledge. You're experiencing music life, but then social life as well. So you're learning how to be yourself around new people while learning how to be yourself, the musician with other people. So there's mm -hmm. like these like two things that are going. So yeah, I think over the time you learn more about like harmony and how to play your physical instrument. And then when you apply that to like a band setting, when you hear someone else do something, you've learned later how to react differently. You've learned what your different options are on how to react or like what chord you can play. But yeah, over time, it's kind of like English language. When, when you're young, someone asks you a question, your options are kind of like yes, no, or make a face. <laughs> but then over time, you learn how to express yourself. You learn reasons why you feel the way you do about the answer or the question. But I think the same musically, like if you sit down 10 minutes a day and you're like really working on the language of music. If you get stumped in a certain spot of your sentence or whatever, you've been getting to that point a lot. So now you have like the skill to like get past it or work your way through it. Whereas before you would have just got there and had no options. Mm -hmm. I did like the uh, idea of comparing uh, learning to play to learning a language. I saw a video recently about the practice of mathematics and how uh, it is very easily lost if you don't continually practice this. It. It's oh, such an yeah. abstract language that even mathematicians who practice regularly have to continually reinforce it in ways that you don't necessarily have to with language. Uh, and that is probably because that level of abstraction is not really becoming incorporated into what you're doing and being as a person in the world. And I think that language itself becomes such a thing that it really is more essentially you. And, and so it's like the practice of music really helps you to find other ways to articulate the self and to share your inner, well, I guess your inner processing uh, that maybe words alone could never do. That's exactly why I hate this challenge. <laughs> I have had a level of irritation about this challenge for a week now. And I sat down on Saturday to try and write this piece. I guess we're getting into the challenge now. Here we are. We're in the challenge. She always, like, we're talking about something. She's like, I'm going to put the challenges now. It's just a segue and I'll forget, you know, I'm leading this fucking conversation. So I sat down on Saturday night. I don't know what was going on. I was just fucking around and I had a glass of wine or so. And I'm like, all right, maybe I'll do this. Right. And so I just started playing 
and maybe I should just fucking play the stupid thing. Oh, I hate this so much. Just get rip the band-aid off. <laughs> All right, so this is the first time around when I was just fucking around on Saturday night and I just was like, "All right, that sounds cool. Let's let's go with it." So, mm -hmm. let me play. <laughs> I gotta tell you, don't, don't say anything negative about it anymore. That is fucking beautiful. I hate, I, I hate you. Oh, um, so, <laughs> I hate you so much. I was, I was, I was getting emotional just while I'm watching it. I'm like, yeah. And I have responses like that to uh, music when it's especially beautiful, and that just happened to me. So I'm trying to like, like articulate why this challenge annoyed me so much. Okay. It kind of like gives away so much about you with words. I can not say something. I can hold back i can articulate things a little bit differently to be a little bit more neutral because you know i like to play the middle and with music it's like not nah, you just fucking naked it just sucks <laughs> i don't know what else to say no but you look at your stub stack and you know you talk about the friday feels kind of stuff and opening yourself up this is maybe the thing that you need to be doing because you and i both know as uh occasional word cells right word cells can hedge and, and add caveats and all kinds of other things that modify them and make them so neutral that you're basically neutered in your expression. This is raw and powerful emotion. I think it's utterly brilliant and that's where you need to be. Fuck you. <laughs> what was your process of writing? Yeah, so drink wine step one because there's a big hurdle for me to do this and i think it's because when i was a little girl i would just compose music right like that's what you do when you're a kid just fucking around because you don't know songs yeah. you write them yourself and my mom came over one time and was like oh wow you know and i was like oh ew no like no i don't want you to see in a piano you can't do it softly it's yeah. like yeah. everybody hears that was part of the big hurdle and then also when I was like 11, I gathered up the courage to like sing in front of my mom. And my mom was like, well, don't quit your day job. And like, <laughs> thanks mom. So I think I've had like performance anxiety ever since. And I actually was in a cover band and they wanted me to sing and I resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted. And then they made me sing. I've had so much like anxiety about doing my own stuff. Whereas when I feel like I'm playing someone else's stuff, it's okay. Like, I'm like, okay, I can fully emote within like your shell. So I sat down and I just thought like, where do I want to start? And what I've been playing a lot lately is Beethoven's third movement and it's in E and it just starts with that low G sharp chord mm -hmm. progression. And it's, you know, so I started with that and I was feeling like very Billie Eilish kind of vibes. And then I felt a little bit like there's a, a show called Big Little Liars. And I think the person who wrote the opening thing is called Michael. I'll link it. I don't remember his name, but it, it started to feel a little bit like that, too. So I was just kind of like in my mind hearing these things with the backdrop of Beethoven. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, and then I just started writing notes. Then I tried to figure out the chord progression that I wanted to hear. And then I thought for a minute about like, bars refrain bridge so i added like some kind of bridge in there and i was like i don't know if this is what i'm supposed to do but i just came up with phrases there's the rub there's nothing you were supposed to do touche <laughs> whatever this is awful okay are we ready to go to brett's challenge now it's 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 not awful and i wanted to point something out here so i had a little note there's a difference between virtuosity and, you know, the actual emotion of a piece. And so you often see people who are extraordinarily young playing an incredibly technical thing or people who maybe are 
on the spectrum, let's say, and they really are good at being able to replicate things that have been done or to remember them in ways that almost none of us can. But there's something absent from that music uh, that makes it so that even the most technical piece and the most beautiful piece begins to lack the emotion that's supposed to come through the instrument. I don't know what to call that. I don't know, I don't know enough about it, but I do know there are ways of playing that allow you to express yourself in the way that you saw you know, what Natasha just did. And then someone else lacking that emotion and that investment in the way they're playing can somehow take that same piece and make it, well, emotionally neuter, so that mm. you feel the nothingness, the hollowness of the emotion behind the technical virtuosity. Yeah, I feel like it's the difference of communicating information or emotion, kind of what you're saying. Like mm. someone that can memorize things well and proficiently play them well is giving you the information they've received. And that's probably how you're hearing it. Whereas right. someone like with your piece, there's years of life attached to the way you play and like how you externalize or like output music. So whenever you decide to do it, there is information involved because you've done years of music, but that's not the place that it's coming from. Mm. So I think whenever people listen, they hear where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. I like what you said about it being someone is doing something that they've received, but they're not grabbing it and making it their own. It really is just a kind of computation. And you can mm -hmm. almost kind of feel the absence of emotion as though it's a kind of computation. I, I kind of like the way of looking at it like that. I wonder how much of that comes from the music itself when you hear it and liberties that people take versus the physicality of the person. So... When we went to the symphony recently, we saw this guy, Augustus, he's a violinist and he was playing this Vivaldi concerto, I think. He memorized the whole thing and you just go, holy fuckamoly. And he was the principal, so he came up to the front. And the other thing though about him that was so striking is he has massive burns all over his face. And I actually wanted to invite him on the podcast, but Something told me he might not be as fun to talk to maybe as you because he was very serious. And, and you could see the emotion that he was playing with. I mean, fucking sweating and just like, you know, like he was going crazy. And mm -hmm. the music itself, if I closed my eyes and didn't look at him, I don't know that I felt the same intensity. So it's like, is the context of the person that you know is the musician really important or is it the music itself? Thank that music in particular was composed with the goal of harmony and melody being reached, if that, if that makes sense. People were writing scores and just like making things for people to play. Like this is how I express this version of harmony. And so I think when you close your eyes, like I was saying, like if that's the place it came from where the goal is harmony and melody, that's probably what you were hearing while you're not engaging your other senses, like eyes closed. I'm only hearing music. That's what I'm taking it in as. Whereas whenever you open your eyes, you're experiencing what he experienced while he was learning the music. So it's not like he learned the song the day before. It's not like he learned violin two months before. Like he's been doing this for years and years and years. And all of that life he brought to the stage. And so you're, you're getting the harmony, the melody, and then his life attached to it as well. So that, that's really interesting. So then basically you're saying that you really can't separate the music from the musician in a lot of ways because you have to have them as a whole. Otherwise we've got the FN Mecca AI rapper situation where it's like, what context does it have? And Mecca was also nominated for a Grammy. <laughs> He'll probably never forget. <laughs> he'll never forget he will never I, forget that, that's just horrible <laughs> but the the other thing i was going to say is when you're playing someone else's music and i think this speaks a lot to what you're doing in your new venture zach is you're putting a kind of a compilation of music together in such a way as to elicit a certain experience for people and uh, yeah. this is what you're doing in your new business right yeah the goal is kind of to meet with artists that already have songs if nothing else maybe they have done live shows before but the goal is to get their vision their ideas 
and make it real. Sometimes artists are not aware of how to put an entire live show together or how to communicate with a band or how to get the album version of their songs successfully to the stage. And then if you get it to the stage, you don't want to play the album only for live. Like I can listen to the record at home. When I go to a concert, I want a different experience. Mm-hmm. So there's things you can do to like add to the music or change it up so that the live show is still you, but it's like a live experience. It's something else for the fans to hear. So what I'm thinking is like when you see Beyonce's like homecoming, that's a whole ass production. So would you also then like write arrangements to like transition from different songs as well if you were to do that? That's like my almost my favorite part of doing it is thinking of song to song. I did it for this band I've been on tour with, this band called The New Respects. I've known them for a while. I was a fan before I started playing with them. So I knew their songs very well. This last tour we did, I just asked them like, send me what songs you want to play for. We had a show in Nashville. It was like an hour, maybe like 75 minute set. I said, send me the songs you want to play, not in order, but just the songs you want to play that will fill the amount of time. And then from there, I'm looking at the keys of the songs, thinking about the mood of the songs or the tempo of the songs, whether it's fast or slow. I think about lyrical content as well. If you have a fast, happy song and then a fast, angry song, you you might not want to put them like back to back. It's kind of communicating weird things beside each other. I took the list, put them in an order, sent it to them and they were like, yeah, this actually looks pretty good. And then from that point, I took the music, put it in the computer, put the songs beside each other. But then I'm thinking like, how can I get from this song to this song cohesively and bring the fans with us instead of just like ending a song, starting the next song. So to get from song to song, you build a transition that like keeps everyone engaged right up until the point where it's the new song. And then people recognize like, oh, I know this one too. And I'm already in it. So we're just going to keep going. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that Beyonce show did that very well. I listened to a band called Clutch, like a a blues metal thing. They started off as a a metal Mm. band in the nineties and they kind of became like this really heavy, they call it stoner rock, but it's not exactly that. It's kind of called that, I think, in part because the lyrics are so hallucinatory. So if you read this guy's lyrics, it reads like an H.P. Lovecraft novel, but the music is really, it's of a funk, but also a kind of grit to it. Um, And they do shows where they'll play the song and you know the song and everybody's having a good time. And then they'll expand the song. There's like Mm -hmm. aspects of drumming and just like bass work that are in there that aren't in there. And there are very often times when I say, why didn't they record that? I want more of that. And it really does just expand the way that I listen to the song afterwards. So I'll play it in my car and it's the album version, right? But I have these kind of auditory, I don't even know what to call them. They're like inclusions or projections that I do in the song to add some of this other stuff in because now for me, that's a part of the music. The first time I saw that I was on tour, I used to play in a was a hardcore band. There's still a hardcore band now. It's like more in the metal world. But we were on the on tour with this band called The Beautiful Ones. They're from Arizona. They're a hardcore band as well. And me and the vocalist of Orthodox, that's the band I was in, loved The Beautiful Ones. Like the record version, we were already fans of when we went on tour with them. Yeah. And then when we got on tour, it was the same thing where like they played most of the song, but then some of the breakdowns, they would play slower or certain sections they would do longer. And my friend and I, we, whenever we're at shows together and something cool happens, we just start laughing. Just like, I can't believe that this is the way they're doing it. I think that was the first time where I recognized, I know this song very well. So this is what I expect to happen. And then something else completely different happens. And I love it even more. Yeah. Yeah. I think the live performance element, it's a musician's realm. I mean, or, or really someone who understands how to enjoy music. Like if you're just a radio bebopper, like the kind of Joe Schmo who listens to shit on the radio, I don't really think you find the value in like live performances much because you're not going there for the exact radio version. I think some artists maybe play more to that because they know their audience are pop lovers or whatever. I think this is the difference between people who like jazz and people who don't. And I think when I was younger, I didn't really love jazz, but 
I love jazz and it's got to be a certain kind of jazz. Obviously, like I'm looking for something probably like that speaks my language, but you invited me to your show mm-hmm. not too long ago. You were playing with a band. I can't remember the name. Who was that guy? Where was the show? He came up on stage. He's wearing the big, like, you know, Bruno Mars get up. Oh no, that was a crooked rhythm band. Number one, the Afrobeat thing. Devin Gilfillian was singing that night. Yeah, I mean, and and the way you guys just, I felt like you were speaking to the audience and the audience was mostly musicians, but there was this language going on back and forth that everyone in the audience was communicating. And I felt like I was like watching the communication happen every mm-hmm. time they bring someone else up. It was just wild to witness. And the thing I love about Nashville is it's literally one of the most multicultural places I've ever been. People coexist here in the way that I think most liberal cities wish people coexisted. Mm. And it's weird because it's liberal city in like a conservative backdrop. But I think everybody kind of lets everybody have each other's culture. And then they all kind of share in it together. And so when you said it was Afrobeats, like I did not feel like that was Afrobeats. But it didn't matter because everybody there was kind of like, yeah, fine, it's Afrobeats. I just felt like even if we didn't all speak the same language culturally, we all spoke the same language that night because we were all there for the music. Yeah. I know that some people, especially in Nashville, go to shows essentially to hear the lyrics being sang. Like that is what they want to do. Like they heard it on the album, but they want to watch the person sing the lyrics in front of them. And that's the whole experience for them. It's like they wrote this really good song that resonates with me lyrically. So I just want to go experience just that in a room while the person is doing it. Whereas the music lover goes to hear the song, but also whatever else may happen musically around or within the song. So yeah, I kind of wonder like why go to an arena show if you only want to hear the lyrics. Those people don't even care if they were the ones who wrote it. Like ask anybody who wrote, I will always love you. And people will be like, Whitney Houston is like, you ding dong. It was Dolly Parton. But like how many people really know that except like Dolly fans, but those people don't even care. I'm I'm so sorry, but I have to say this. The Dolly Parton version is infinitely better because Whitney Whitney Houston, she has this talent, but she so overuses it in that song. It's not even dripping. You are drowning in this emotionality. And I would say that the Dolly Parton version has a subtlety to it that allows you to experience the feelings that she's going through in a way that you can't when it's this barrage of high notes. Like Whitney is showing her technical prowess, but I think that in doing so, she overuses it to the point of maybe diluting the emotional message of the song. This conversation comes up in church settings a lot. Really? Uh, Yeah, because... I guess the question comes like, like how much is too much as far as like show value. So if you're in church and the goal is to be respectable or setting the tone for like a spiritual environment, is there such thing as too many runs that takes you out of that spiritual environment? Some people argue yes. Some people say no, because like, if you believe you've been given a gift, and I'm supposed to use it the best I can, why would I not want to expand on harmony or sing like Whitney or something like that? So there's often a back and forth about, no, you should just do the record version or sing it like the hymn versus spicing it up and adding to it and doing more. But but it all boils down to like, how do you like your Jesus? Like, do you like your Jesus on the cross? Or do you like your Jesus like in Talladega Nights, like in a tuxedo t-shirt? You know, do you imagine sweet baby Jesus? Or do you imagine Jesus came to party? Like, I would say Jesus was raving in his diaper. So there. (laughs) (laughs) Too far. Too far. Too far. I'm I'm remixing. I'm very (laughs) improvisational like that. It's almost like a kind of intellectual jazz. Just saying. (laughs) This podcast is absolutely intellectual jazz, a hundred percent. Let's move to Brett's challenge, shall we? I'm officially coming out as Brett Tobin uh, after this. Yeah, yeah. Hit it. Oh, okay. Hit it.
Thank you very much. <laughs> what a ride. What a ride, though. <laughs> Thank you. I fucking loved it. I fucking loved it. You know, I can't even believe what came out of it. Okay, here's what I wrote. I wrote Prince vibes right away. Like when you transition straight away into the beat. And then it was like tribal. There's like a little tick that you threw in there. And then the helicopter came in. And then yeah. the tea kettle went off. And then there was an abrupt change to like electronica. And then the helicopter came again, but this time it was landing really close. <laughs> and I just thought there were like great transitions. And then the little like, did you know at the end? It was a smorgasbord of things that I liked. So I, fucking <laughs> great, dude. Thank you very much. <laughs> I feel like that was when we were talking about show transitions earlier. That first part sounded like great show intro to me. Like room is dark, lights flash here and there. Like the band is about to come out. It's like blank enough for anything to happen, but the small things that are happening like carried enough weight to like have the person leaning into what's about to come. And then when the tribal stuff came in, it reminded me of the Beyonce album. It felt like it could have been some house type stuff that was about to come in with the tribal elements. The electronic thing came in. I I hated it, honestly. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like electronica. I, in the context of everything else. It was a weird context, yeah, but just, I liked it. Just the sound. Probably the notes are fine. The sound threw me for a second. But then once it, like, transitioned, like, into that space, it made a lot more sense. As a live show maker and, like, producer, there was a lot of stuff in there that I would take and chop up and sample and like use for probably like lots of different things it was yeah there was a lot in there yeah yeah it was like 10 songs in one it was <laughs> like there's so many different things that i enjoy and this is the, the first time i've done anything like this so mm. so for me to have these options and say well what about this and what about this what you're what you're seeing really is me grabbing everything like if i had a room full of instruments grab oh, everything yeah. and throw all this stuff together Put all the spices all the stuff is right there and this is this is like the spiciest indian dish you could ever eat <laughs> like indian and, italian it was it was like so I, many things yes how did I was, you do it the thing is called garage band i got some sound libraries and i started experimenting with them played stuff on the keyboard to the okay. degree that i could line up what was going on in the software with the keyboard you can even hear a couple of the times the drum it's a little tiny bit off and that's just me hitting the keyboard because it's not like a real keyboard it's just yeah, my, yeah. my my typing pad mm -hmm. i wish i knew more about how to use it kind of had to learn the interface and everything at the same time and so i spent probably about half my time learning what to do yeah that's we're really gonna drop cool. the syllogism album 2023 <laughs> That's right. You don't play any instruments, right? No. Yeah, I think there was a good bit of like musicality in there as well. Like I liked a lot of the transitions, you know, so it was very expressive of who you are. It was very cool. The only thing that didn't make musical sense to me was at the very end 
there's like maybe some synths and like vocal stuff floating around that like harmonically was like very like on top of each other, which emotionally can make sense as far as like chaos being communicated or something like that. But harmonically, I was just like trying to figure out what was going on. So that's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing. It's just like what I was thinking about while it was happening. I would definitely need to practice to get stuff like that right. And I don't know if you listen to something like Suono Tricks, Point Never, like Holly Herndon. They're kind of experimental, minimalist artists. And there yeah. kind of sounds like that in there where they're choppy and glitchy and the glitchy is intentional. Mm -hmm. And so I like that, that the vocal uh, with the synth has a bit of that feeling, but mm -hmm. at the same time, kind of lacks the rhythm, I think, of some of the stuff I was doing with the, with the, the drumming in between. Gotcha. So I, I can definitely see that. The whole challenge here is about musical intelligence. And regardless of what Howard Gardner says, which by the way, Howard Gardner is not going to be coming on the podcast. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I have things I could say about that, but I'll, Anyways, I, no. Um, thank you very I much. I did the thing you do. I did the you thing. Um, <laughs> what Brett's piece made me think about was, I always think Brett's probably got like some kind of synesthesia. The idea that you can like taste colors or mm. hear visuals. It's the combination of, of one or more senses. And there's an idea about what, makes this happen in the brain. Like, I think Kanye says he's got synesthesia. I think Kanye says a lot of things. Kanye says a lot of things. But there's like a little bit of like a crazy element to it, right? Because nobody else can see this shit. Nobody associates this warm tone that you hear with like the color burnt orange. But there's a genetic factor to it that, first of all, not many people experience this. And the idea behind it is that there may be some kind of crazy hyperconnectivity between brain regions because, like I said before, when you're playing music, the whole brain is lit up because it's all communicating. The auditory, visual, motor cortices are all just fucking firing through the corpus callosum. And there's just so many things happening in your brain. And with synesthesia, I think those people have like some really thick wiring between those areas. And that's one hypothesis about it. There's another hypothesis that there's a feedback loop that happens in most people and it, it's inhibited. So it's like, okay, no, we don't connect those two areas. And in these people who experience it, they're like, no, we connect all these areas. So there's a couple of different hypotheses about how that happens. But people who play music are just fucking smarter, period. That's a fact. So Brett, maybe you. I IQ in a five points, just component. Yeah, maybe you could beat me in the final challenge if you start practicing your music now. <laughs> Yo, Marcus Colosum is thick. Thick. Thick as... That, let me tell you right now. And <laughs> functional. And, yeah. Functional. It is functional. It is functional. It is dysfunctional, but it is functional. <laughs> so the, the practice callosum is the area of the brain in the middle that connects, like, the linguistic area with the creative area. Mm. And it is shown to be thicker and more dense and activated in people. <laughs> I think it's to be on a t-shirt. But there was a study that I read of people during COVID who were told either, hey, you can like learn how to knit or learn some exercise or learn an, an instrument and we're going to measure your IQ before and after. And after six months of learning an instrument, those motherfuckers are the only ones who had a 10% IQ increase. But how? So, therefore, there is no reason, there is no excuse for you not making yourself smarter, saying stop being stupid and pick up an instrument. The reason you're stupid is you're not playing an instrument. Start playing, you'll get smarter. <laughs> Brett, do you, do you think you have synesthesia? I know I have really strong emotional responses uh, to music. I also know that I tend to think a lot in images, and, and I know that words will kind of be associated with them, but it's not hard-coded. It's just that it flows very easily in a way that's creative and fluid. It's not something I come across in others too much. So I don't know if it's exactly synesthesia, but there's probably some relationship or some similarity with what I notice in myself and that kind of idea. It is polygenic, and they don't really know exactly what causes it, and it's supposedly hereditary. Same thing with perfect pitch, like the ability to hear a pitch with no context. I've always thought that I'm not good at music because I don't have perfect pitch. I'm a fucking idiot mm. because it's like one in 10,000 people have that. 
I remember reading something about, you know, tonal language speakers and their very high frequency mm. uh, relative to the rest of the world who are non-tonal and having a perfect pitch. And so you'll see this very often in people from China who are using a tonal language. There's definitely a coincidence between that kind of language and that kind of ability. Also, the music they're probably growing up hearing versus ours includes microtonal pitches. So mm. like they're already accessing pitch in their voice more than we do. And then the music that's just playing while they're a baby, just like taking in everything right. also includes pitches that we don't normally hear. So they, yeah, whenever you grow up and just like give a name to it, or there's more context for what you've been hearing, it would make sense how they would have a, a stronger pitch. That's an argument a little bit for, yes, there is a genetic or polygenic component, but there's also this thing where it is tweakable, or at least you might be able to live in an environment which maximizes the possibility for you to express the thing that's already there. Well, we talk about this all the time, all the way since episode one, that all traits and behaviors are on a genetic leash, that you're anchored by your genes this gene that you're anchored to only allows you this far and then you practice and you tick that outward to give yourself more room. And I think that's probably a conciliant idea that speaks to all of this. Yeah, I have one more thing. I might have this here. Hold on. Just, I got these on CD years and years and years and years and years ago. And I had to use the box uh, for something, but... Is it your Columbia Records 99 cent CD collection from 1984? Uh, no, it, it is an original 1984 printing of Run DMC, <laughs> Rock the Bells, hand side. Uh, so well. look at this, relative pitch ear training, right? And then... It looks like it's from 19 man, perfect, dude. Perfect pitch. I got these things, and this is something I wanted to do when I was, you know, a teenager. So these are fucking old, but I guess the point is I've had an interest in this for a very, very, very long time. It's, it's just something that I haven't really, well, I haven't really done much to express. Yeah. My grandpa had those too, right next to his, like, learn how to speed read and uh, learn how to calculate multi-digit numbers in 10 seconds. I have those. I have those on instead. I have done, I have done all of those things. Are, are those CDs, you're supposed to be able to pick them up at any point in life and it work, or is there like a certain age range it tells you to start it by? Um, it did not specify an age range uh, when they were selling it. So it, I think it's supposed to be that if you don't have it, you can acquire it even wow. if you're older because it wasn't marketed to children at all. I think there's some things that you gain with age, definitely when it comes to music. But like I have an example from my daughter, I have a video of her. She used to look out the window and tell me to play Lionel Richie, hello. Mm -hmm. And she'd be like, just play it. And like, she'd make me repeat it over and over and over. And she'd be in the car, just like longingly looking out the window. And like, she, she'd just roll around the house, kind of like soaking in like the emotion of that song. And I just found it so striking. She's like three years old. And it just grasped her the kind of like, eerie and like sweet melody of it but i think as you get older i think just like with your palate for taste you start to like acquire more things and i recently heard this thing about how speech is musical i went to a poetry jam when i was like eight and i was like listening to it and i was like oh cool. these people are cool people but i i didn't really get the like thing itself i was like so why are you emphasizing the things i don't really know why and now that i'm older and then, like, I, and then i went to the vagina monologues when i was like i don't know my 20s or something and it's the same kind of thing it's, I, an, it's I, go ahead go ahead i totally expected that you were going to do a rap and i'm so glad you didn't to be honest well you you wouldn't be able to handle my flows when you said you were looking for bars, it, my bars Wait here. Let me tell you it's right true. now. It's true. I don't know about up here, but like it's like out the back of my head for sure. It, it could be. Yeah. I definitely process your raps and then my brain explodes afterwards. But I thought for sure you were going to have lyrics. And I don't know about for you, but like I thought about writing lyrics. Do you write lyrics, Zechariah? Yes. You're different. <laughs> I've done it for myself. I have songs out. I've also sat down and written with other artists. 
I used to write poems a lot. I told myself years ago I would put out a book of poetry. I never did, but they exist in my computer somewhere. You yeah, still I, can. I, you're right. Yeah. How does that compare in your mind to playing music? I like doing both. I'm a lot better at music. Like I can, especially on bass, I can just go. There's not a bunch of thought. I start somewhere and I can just go. Kind of on keys too. It's not as great because I'm not as fluent there. But lyrics, it takes a while for me to communicate what I want to communicate. Whereas musically, I can get there pretty quick. If I'm ever writing with other people, if there's three people in the room writing, I think I'm a great third. Often what happens is there's a lot of ideas being thrown around and what I think I'm good at is catching the good pieces and like reminding him like, oh, you said that, you said this, I think this is a good idea to work together. Mm. And then musically, I feel like I can support those ideas very well. I don't think I'm a great songwriter because I think great songs are broad enough to paint a big picture, but specific enough for you to see your house in the picture, if that makes totally. sense. Totally. Yes. And I, I don't think I'm great at that, but I, I think I'm great at being helpful in that process and then putting the music under it. So I wrote that little thing, right? And then I was like, oh, let me add some lyrics to it. And I was like, I don't. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't know. The song's yeah. going to be about me not knowing what I'm saying. And I don't, I don't like that. It didn't feel good. And I thought about writing it for someone else. I thought about like someone else in my life who's going through something right now. And I thought like, I want to write this for them. And then I was like, no, I can't do that. I just couldn't put, I could write separately and mm -hmm. I could write the music, but like, I couldn't figure out what the music was trying to say with words. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Do you think if you were to have worked on your melody more that would have came quicker than lyric as well i think the melody actually hindered it because uh, i don't think it was a melody that i was playing it was something else mm. the melody was not what i was playing and i think that's the problem okay i ask because sometimes for me if i have a melody that informs what the lyric should be to me so i think it limits mm my options like if the melody is shaped a certain way I'm not going to write it about I, hard to say without a melody but like a pretty melody I'm not going to start writing about a bad day mm -hmm. like, you know it kind of like limits lyrically mm -hmm. the space I'm going to be writing in which then makes it a little easier yeah well there's something about working within constraints and so if, mm -hmm. if your possibilities are limitless you might almost do nothing and so when I think about even what I did part of the reason I could do anything at all is because I had such limited bass skill that there were things that I could grab onto that I could play with, but my palette was only like this big. And that allowed me to do something that in the end, the expression was pretty expansive for, mm -hmm. you know, an utter novice, like literally having too many options can, I think in some ways also be inhibitory. It's like a little bit of pressure applied allows you to express something that's specific. When I'm at home, I have like a keyboard and a lot of different synthesizers and samples like within the computer to create with. So there's like big old library of options to do stuff. And sometimes I get stuck because I don't know what sound I want to use or what plugin or what effect I want to use. But recently I was in a hotel, like while I was on the road and I didn't have all of my stuff with me. And I challenged myself, like make something with the limited things you have right now. So I didn't like physically play any chords. I grabbed some samples and like moved them around and like repitched it or whatever. And then at home, sometimes I'll like program the drums in, but I didn't have that. So I, you call it like draw MIDI notes in. So you just write the musical information in. So that's what I did. And that ended up being one of my favorite tracks I've made in a long time because it was like so limited. I only have this many options to make something good. And so it forced me to like commit to the small thing I had. To me, it turned out great. Like I still listen to it. <laughs> I think that is a problem in, in society in general. And I think about this a lot. A friend and I were having a discussion about, she was like, I'm never going to be a homeowner. And she was kind of wanting to like blame the world for this. Like if it weren't for student loan debt, and I love you girl, if you're listening, but like I said the same thing to her that I'm going to say right now. I was like, you know what? You close that door on yourself. Because she went to school to be a professional opera singer. And 
she left New York City and stopped pursuing it because she actually didn't like the performance aspect of it. I don't like mm. the performance aspect of music either. I love playing music. I like playing it by myself. I love learning music. But then I cannot be a performance artist if I don't enjoy and feel passionate about the performance. Sure. And so she, uh, a long way through her career, closed the door on doing that. And then she had to restart her career and then she had to restart her career again. And she went back and got her master's and all this stuff. And so she accumulated a lot of student debt. And so I was like, you closed a door on yourself by doing all these things. And mm -hmm. it sucks. But in this world today, people don't like doors being closed on them. They don't like to be put into this box because they're like, I'm not free. And I say this a lot, but what our marital counselor told us, like, the wilder the beast, the stronger the cage. Meaning like, the tighter the confines you have around yourself, the more free you can be within it, mm. you know? And I think this sure. is what we're talking about here with music, creativity, the world at large. Like, no, maybe you're never going to be a homeowner, but it's like, you still have a lot of other things once you rule that out and go, okay, I'm never going to own a home. I like to travel a lot. I want to be everywhere. You have a lot more freedom once you let go of that and let the door close on that. Let the sun set on some shit, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of what happens even when you go through education at all. So you go in anywhere, let's say you're at the beginning of your educational experience, you go in with limitless possibilities and then you start going, you know, what's really awesome to me It's it's, let's say it's philosophy or something like that. And you start studying and studying. And then before you know it, you've got your master's and your PhD and there's all this other stuff out here, but you don't need to think about those. The fact of concentrating your identity around something allows you to focus all of your energy on something and make something of yourself because we are not infinite. There's something about becoming a self requires that you realize your limits and then also accept them and work within them. I think a yeah. tough part about music school for a lot of people was the competitive part of it. Like you're just around a lot of musicians. So you feel like you need to be able to do everything everybody else does. When in reality, once you get out of school and get into the musician work world, you really just need to be really good at your thing. You get there and there's so many options. You meet all these people and they do this and they do that. And so then your options expand again to the point where some people like give up. They like switch majors because they don't know what they want to do anymore. Mm. Playing music becomes less fun to them because it, yeah, it's challenging to decide who you are musically in a space where people may already know that answer and possibly be informing what your answer should be. I know I could study rock and jazz and soul and blues, but I'm really only good at jazz. Yeah, it's right. like that closing down of the design phase process, opening up to all possibilities, and then you have to close down to really get success at, the, at yeah. a thing. I, I do have... I did want to get back to, because I, I don't know how much of your time we have, but when we were talking about the musicality of, of language, and this is kind of thematic for us. I remember a long time ago listening to a podcast, it's a radio lab, and they did a show where they were talking about how language becomes music. And they took this sample of a statement and it says, it's basically sometimes behaves so strangely. And it was within, it was encapsulated within a broader sentence, but the fact that that was there and then extracted and listened to made it so that you could hear music in it. And then you could do all kinds of things with this basic sentential structure spoken without the intention to be musical. Mm -hmm. And in it, you could find music when you took it out and let it be its own thing. The brain starts to say, hey, you know what? I think I see a pattern here. And that's where, for me, when you go to a live show and you're thinking about all these people from all these different backgrounds there, and it, it kind of homogenizes us in this broad human experience that is probably as tantamount spiritual as you're going to get in a very secular world, the music speaks a language that is universally human. And mm. so it doesn't matter what the person is even saying. And I listen to lots of things where I don't know, I don't know what they're saying. And some people even just construct languages just to fit in with the sound of the music they're making. But there's something about that that communicates something so universal that all your barriers dissolve wordlessly mm -hmm. because of this universal language. There's something about the cadence sometimes behaves so strangely. I was listening to that as well. I couldn't remember the phrase, but there's something about the cadence of your voice. And it's funny because I've had people give feedback on the podcast 
And your voice in particular is very polarizing. Well, look at me. Uh, I no, am listen to you. <laughs> you haven't given me that feedback. Oh, I know I haven't. This is raw dog in you right now. Some people love your voice. They're like, absolutely, Brett should definitely always be a podcaster. I've even had people tell me that they think Brett should be a spiritual guru. Other people are like, I love your podcast, but like your co-host sounds like a sports newscaster and I can't get past it. <laughs> I've had all of, all of the gamut. And then the problem is, I think I've gotten a little overzealous in our editing process lately. And that's why I'm glad we have a new editor because the cadence of our voice is important. And even like your verbal virtuosity, as you like to say, you're very verbose. And there's something to that that I think gives like a, it's like the breadiest bread. Like, the, you know what I mean? It like gives you like <laughs> all of your juice and your mojo and editing it sometimes can feel like you're kind of like draining that. But there's like the cadence to your voice and everything like that is so musical. But yeah, I don't know. I'm looking for a way to end this, to be honest. If we were thinking about wrapping it up, we might want to talk about whether or something about your ability to uh, adapt to and express yourself musically that is a kind of intelligence that's likenable to uh, what we would think of as the normal ways of evaluating intelligence. There's something special about music. So I'm going to say yes. What do you think, Zach? I think, yes, I'm trying to figure out how to compare. I know somebody who's very successful in music. He's a front of house engineer, so he does sound at the front of shows. I don't know that he can match pitch and he doesn't listen to music often, like, yeah. but he's very good at making it sound good. So it's just interesting. My other friend back home is a guitar player, so he can play chords. Like you tell him this chord, that chord, that chord, boom, boom, boom. He can do it. But if you're like sing la, he cannot like match the pitch. So it's, that may be different than musical intelligence. I just wonder how to compare the two, being able to read versus being able to sing. Is, is that a mm. comparison? Like, well, though, I think those are two different things because that is like a motor thing. Being able to read versus being able to read music would be more comparable. Okay, yeah. Whereas we're comparing apples and oranges because your ability to sing is more about your ability to hear, your ability to process, your ability to select notes, and then your ability to translate that to your vocal cords, and then your vocal cords' ability to generate the sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then if we're comparing reading English to reading music, then there there's definitely like different kinds of intelligence on, on both sides. Would that be correct? I would think they're quite similar. There's a lot of pattern recognition. Same thing with reading music and mathematical intelligence. I think the ability to read music is very much in tune with G. And I think what we're talking about here, the emotional capacity and the capacity to perform music infused with emotion, that might be the thing that G doesn't cover. Like general intelligence doesn't really address that thing we were talking about where you can be a virtuoso, but you ain't got the soul. No sauce. <laughs> no sauce. And thank you, Brett. That did not close this out at all. A new conversation. And I think music probably is one of the most all-encompassing uh, types of intelligence because it includes a kind of bodily kinesthetic thing, the ability to coordinate and move and be precise about those things and then to do them in time. And there's something about timekeeping that is also related to uh, different kinds of mental processing, wherein if you can't do it, for instance, you might suffer some deficits in your ability to do math. And then the music itself is mathematical. I mean, there's nothing about a musical notation and the ways in which you go about synchronizing things isn't itself an expression of math. And then it also winds up being a language that is more universal than any language that we're currently using to speak to each other. And so therefore, I think it winds up being pretty damn close to an expression of a universal kind of intelligence. Word. I, I agree. That's my five second. That's my five minute uh, speech or whatever, however long that was. <laughs> I'm functioning on no food. <laughs> Somebody get Brett a sandwich before he starts laughing. Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, including show notes, bonus content, and behind-the-scenes footage, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter at theoryyang.io forward slash newsletter.